0: hi ho everybody. My name is Patrick McKenzie, perhaps better known as Patio11 on the Internet. This is the, I think, third episode of the Kalzumias podcast with my buddy Keith Perhack. Hello. And our special guest, Brennan Dunn of Planscope and Double Your Freelancing Rate.
1: Woo! Hey there.
0: <laughs> that was our live
2: studio audience. <laughs> so last time we had a theme song, but... um. I
0: don't know, do we have a theme song this time as well? I think we are totally theme songless. Okay, all right. This is still the Third Rate Podcast. So, Brennan, recently you had a product launch. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that, and we'll segue into this discussion about it.
3: Absolutely. So, for the last few months, I've been thinking about putting together an info product, uh, specifically one that is targeting really a passion point of mine, which is freelancers who undercharge for their services. It's something that really came from my own experience. For way too many years, I charged dramatically less than what I was worth. And only recently have I fixed that. And since I fixed that, not only has my income gone up, but the caliber of client that I work with Mm -hmm. has gone up also. And I really wanted to just kind of Not only spill the beans as to how I got there, but also back it with, you know, pricing research that I've done. So I've done a lot of reading of uh, really executive level books on, you know, the science of pricing and and really targeting, you know, factories and and massive companies that produce products. And I wanted to find a way to distill that into something consumable for, you know, an independent service provider. So Mm -hmm. I took that knowledge. I took my background. I interviewed I think six or seven what I deem premium freelancers, people who either charge a lot or have really a very good business around themselves. They're not just developers, they're not just designers, they're they're true business people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I condensed that into a into a book that I launched last week.
0: So feedback that I frequently get from people when trying to tell them similar things is that that's great for you, but you are a coding Ubermensch. I am merely a PHP coder, how would I ever make that transition into being a business kind of guy. So I think that's maybe something that's worthwhile for us to discuss. Just for background, for those of you who don't know, all three of us do consulting work on a semi-regular basis, and without revealing anyone's rate cards, they're pretty up there versus the, say, $20 an hour commodity PHP coder that you might know, or perhaps have in your household somewhere. <laughs> and, um, a good portion of our business success has been that we started out there when we were young and stupid and we are no longer young and stupid and the, our universal experience and that of lots of people in our, say, social and professional circles has been that, just like Brennan said, when you start charging more and you start positioning yourself as being more valuable to your customer's business, you deal with radically better clients oh yes they're savvier they are smarter about using a consultant services they're more respectful of your time they have less random problems with things your advice is more likely to get adopted everything about life gets better as you charge more also charging more tends to make you a little more money I think that's like a mathematical identity or something (laughs) but don't discount having a little more money because it really makes life better um
2: So I, I want to I go off on that a little. You were mentioning the more you charge, the better your client. And that is completely a perception of how much your time is worth. And I'm sure, Patrick, you've had experience like this. I'm sure, Brennan, you have as well. And I know I'm guilty of this as well, especially for people you know or you want to give them the friend rate, right? Or it's a new client and you're like, oh, I'll, I'll just do it cheaper this once. And as soon as you say that, your perceived value of your time goes down so much. I've had clients call me up for 30 minutes an hour just to talk about random shit that they want to talk about because they don't value my time.
1: Because mm-hmm. right.
2: they're paying me $20, $50 an hour and they're like, eh, he's got time to talk about whatever it is I want to talk about for half an hour.
3: Mm-hmm. What, what starts to happen is your standards start slipping when you do that. You, what you'll find is clients will then start paying their invoices late. They will start doing a lot of things which hurt your business. It's not probably always. It's oftentimes it's the relationship is basically changes dramatically. Mm-hmm. Instead of it being a business relationship, it becomes a I don't want to say a friend relationship, but more of a you know a relationship that's very fluid right. and I think has I mean, no standard.
0: Yeah, I think people treat a given business relationship with a certain like fixed amount of professionalism in it. And if you come in and set the expectation that you are a... The Japanese word is kichintoshita. Keith, can you help me translate that? A Solid a solid, proper professional, like a lawyer would be. Then people will mm-hmm. tend to treat that relationship inside that solid, proper, professional schema. You'll be you'll naturally have a, a certain amount of human rapport with your clients, but they're going to expect that if they don't pay an invoice on time, there will be negative consequences. That you know they should show up to meetings on time because that's just the way we do professional things. Right. Whereas if you treat yourself like somebody's kid's brother who's been hired as a favor, you will get yeah, treated like somebody's kid's brother. And you know if you're fifteen minutes late to an uh, to a meeting that you've got set up with kid who you're doing a favor for, well, the, the kid's time is kind of worthless, and he can wait, you know, it's no problem. Yeah. And if you're a couple of days late on paying him, eh, he lives with his parents, what's the problem?
1: Right. So, yeah. And
0: I'm, I'm sure, and nothing I think will drive this
2: point home more than I'm sure any freelancer listening to us has proposed something, any idea about a website or a project that they're doing, and then a consultant who's paid maybe 100 times more than they are comes in and says the exact same thing, and the boss is like, "Oh, that's a brilliant idea. Why didn't we think of this?" Right? Because having the high-paid consultant, having the high-paid person, has a perceived value attached to it. So anything they come up with is generally going to be perceived in a better light mm-hmm. than. And it, it, it's not
3: month. only that; it's their presentation is usually entirely different. So right. one of the problems with most freelancers is they talk in code or design. They mm-hmm. think that, for instance, I know Ruby, therefore I market myself as a Ruby developer. Therefore, I have a client who wants, you know, I'm doing some work with somebody who wants to kind of rebuild an old Microsoft Access system that they have that has kind of accumulated over 10 years. So instead of me marketing myself to them as I'm a coder, I'm going to rewrite your code to be web-based instead of, you know, using Microsoft Access, instead my positioning is I'm a business consultant who we're going to look at what you have currently and see where we can optimize and what that will do long term, well, it'll it'll save you a lot of money. Because I'm going to be I'm focusing on your business. I'm not focused on the code necessarily. I'm focused on what code do I need to write. And I'm really internalizing this what code needs to be written in order to make his business more successful. Right. And that's something that I, I see so many people mess up. They look at themselves based on what technologies they happen to know and use, right. instead of the outcome that the clients actually hire us for, which is to make more money than
0: they spend on us. So something my buddy Thomas Potasic, also a high karma person on Hacker News, says is that one of the differences between freelancers and consultants is that consultants own the business objectives of the code that they write. If you're building a scalable content generation system or something, that's basically like the Ruby on Rails five-minute build-a-blog demo with a slightly different objective. But the slightly different objective is designed to directly create business value for the customer by we're going to get you more traffic from google you are going to convert x percent of them into your free trial that is going to convert into revenue and rather than you know you delivering the scalable content system and saying okay stuff can now appear on your website so i guess i'm done you both instrument it out so that you can directly measure how much revenue that gets produced and then the, the crucial bit is that when you produce revenue and stuff like that, and you have a reputation of doing that in the past, both for other clients and for this particular client, then that informs how you are going to present everything else that you do, such that you are not providing commodity coding, but instead you are providing business initiatives that the underpant gnome's uh, narrative is question mark, question mark, question mark, I fill in the revenue, and then we go to profit. And then you charge numbers that would shock the conscience of a um, basic like, commodity. <laughs> right. So speaking of numbers that would shock the conscience, so all three of us are in kind of an awkward position because there's absolutely no reason to say your rate publicly. Let me talk about past rates because uh, I think all of us at one point probably charged a hundred dollars an hour. Keith and I used to work for a Japanese uh, megacorps. Uh, well mine was a little more megacorpy than Keith's, but Japanese engineers make nowhere near a hundred bucks an hour. So I thought a hundred dollars an hour was a quite high freelancing rate.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, it turns out that after you start making clients sizable amounts of money, or you know, if a given software company has ten million dollars of revenue, one percent of their like a 1% improvement in their conversion funnels is worth a very sizable amount of money, then $100 an hour no longer makes sense for your services.
3: I think we tend to be very bad at quantifying the amount of success we bring our clients, Mm -hmm. and we're very bad at charging for that. We look at ourselves as, you know, you rent an hour of my time, and for that hour, I'm going to write code. Instead of looking at the big picture, which is, it's going to take us... X many weeks to build a system that will increase, like you said, their revenue by one percent. Which, if they're making a hundred million a year, that's a million dollar increase of revenue. Mm-hmm. And the amount of time or effort or whatever else that went into that is immaterial as long as it's less than the net result of that investment.
2: Right. You pretty much took what I was going to say. I was going to say that one of the key things, and we had talked about this with Amy Hoy as well is rephrasing what you are and what you're doing. And um, Brendan, you r- really touched on this and you said, I am not a programmer. I am a business consultant that is doing X right So that's reframing it in a way that the business that the client can understand right because a programmer, especially if they're not a technical client, programmers can be found on Odesk for five dollars an hour. Right. right Programmers are building a tool for you where a business consultant is solving a problem. (laughs) I think a lot of us, especially myself when I did a lot more programming, I always felt that I was solving problems with programming. But the problems that I was solving were things that other people were identifying or that other people would have to take and put into the business sense, right? I was solving technical hurdles and technical issues, but I was never really solving an issue of increasing revenue by 10% or whatnot. Right.
3: A good parallel to that is saying to a carpenter that you're solving problems by cutting wood. The carpenter really, the benefit is, to the, to the end consumer, is you're building a comfortable chair or you're building a wardrobe that holds all of their clothing. You know, the, how they hammer or cut the wood and, and everything else, the carpenter takes a lot of pride in, but typically to the end consumer, it doesn't really matter. And I think that's, you know, Patrick used the word commodity, which is something I use throughout the book. If I'm a $100 an hour Ruby developer, and I market myself as a developer who writes Ruby, and then a $5 an hour Ruby developer comes along on Odesk, there's absolutely no reason if I'm a commodity that my client should not, or my potential client should not be hiring the person 20 times less than I am. Right. And, you know, it's like corn. Like, I don't care what field corn was grown on. I want to eat corn. And when we position ourselves as a commodity like corn or oil or whatever else, it becomes a race to the bottom, which you really can't escape until you start positioning yourself differently.
2: Right. And you um you phrased in the book, and this really hit home with me, you were um, you phrased it as personal vanity. And that really just kind of struck me. It's like, I like to think that I write clean code. I write extensible code. I write clean HTML. I'm responsive, blah, blah, blah. But really, the customer doesn't care about that. It does not provide them any value, as far as they can see, for me to have clean code. That's completely a anything. thing. Now, I know from a technical standpoint, there are a lot of merits to it, especially for people who have to come in later. But explaining that to a non- especially non-technical customer right off the bat, I mean, who cares, to be 100% the clean,
3: honest. The clean code you're writing is the feature. What right. you, need, you just need to explain the benefit. You need right. to explain your maintenance costs will go down.
2: Right, You exactly. won't be spending
3: as much having somebody need to come in a year from now and clean up the mess, you know, what we call technical debt, which just uh, kind of a a word of warning, don't use that word or that phrase Mm -hmm. uh, when marketing yourself. It just sounds bad. You know, basically just say, I I work in such a way that the amount of money you will need to invest in the system after this initial phase of work is complete Mm -hmm. will be less than it would if I didn't work that way. Right, right. And that's how you position the benefit. Right. right.
0: And honestly, learn the language of your customers. This is not universal across all customers, but many customers would phrase that as a lower total cost of ownership. And if they talk like that, I understand that you're a programmer and you hate sounding like a guy that has an MBA, but if your costa- customers talk like they have an MBA, perhaps because they MBA are indeed MBAs, then you need to learn to speak that language. And you need to learn to talk like we have a lower total cost of ownership. There's lower risk of failing to... Uh, execute on the strategies in later quarters because you'll be too busy fixing the existing system or the system will be insufficiently flexible to start handling uh, newer initiatives that you might want to bolt on later, that sort of thing. In addition to just the money thing, I think there's also sort of a status gain in moving up the ladder from commodity web programmer or designer or what have you to business consultants and status in that. Take a lawyer, for example. A lawyer's professional competency is writing letters. But no lawyer in the history of mankind has ever described themselves as a professional letter writer for hire or a letter writer specializing in empty threats. <laughs> a, they're, they're smart about being a profession and having their time and advice be valued and then reliably charging extraordinary rates for that time and building six-minute increments. But also the notion that they are providing outsized value for the business with their relationship to the business allows them to be perceived as more credible and to be sort of at the table when the important decisions are made. And especially as you get kind of, you know, leveling up in consulting, you will frequently be, you know, at a smaller company, say with 30 employees, you might be talking to the CEO or one level below the CEO, talking to project leads in charge of, even as an outside consultant, you might be in charge of things that are kind of core to the strategic outlook for the business which. With great rewards come great responsibility on that, but it's kind of a nice place to be. You'll spend less time kind of having your uh, the minutia of your craft get micromanaged and more time being able to kind of, within reason, pick the tools slash processes slash people you want to do your work with and be sort of, you know allowed to succeed in your work in a way that if you're charging $20 an hour and you're perceived as somebody's kid's brother, you won't really be allowed to succeed in the work.
3: The really the difference is, you know, you go from being a outsourced developer to a really a close advisor that has a a huge opportunity where they can help steer the direction of their client's company and If you do a good job and you basically end up creating a very strong ROI, you'll be able to use that in so many different ways in the future to your advantage, which will make your life easier. Like you said, Patrick, you'll be able to be more selective. You'll be able to choose to work with people you really want to work with instead of just choosing to work with whoever happens to contact you.
0: Switching gears just slightly. So we've talked about kind of ranking up from being a freelancer to being a business consultant, which again, that's partially just a semantic difference but partially not so much like words actually do have meaning but um, a, another related topic which you two have a bit more of experience for me is expanding from a consulting practice to a consultancy and that is not actually the right word I'm basically making the leap a solo kind of like individual producer of whatever it is that you are awesome and good at into somebody who manages a firm which produces that thing that you were once good at and that is a major step for businesses that quite a lot of people take actually. And I think our listeners are probably interested in it. So why don't you guys describe how making the leap was for you?
2: I'm still in the middle of leaping. So I guess I'm kind of mid leap. I have four people with me right now, none really doing the consulting side. I have sales and some developers with me, but mainly I'm still at the head of the consulting. I mean, I guess the The pull of having a consulting agency is being able to do more stuff with your limited time, right? I mean, there's definitely a monetary aspect to it as well, but at the end of the day, there's only so many hours in a month, and that means that there's only so many clients you can take. And if you want to increase that, the only way to do it is to increase the number of people working with you. So that's kind of where I am in it. I'm just in the midst of trying to start it. And Brendan I know has successfully completed that, that sub quest, I guess.
3: There comes a point where if you do good work and you're providing positive benefits for your client that or clients that you're gonna get more work than you can handle. And there are two paths you could go down. The first path is to, d- to just say, I'm booked. Uh, maybe we can try to squeeze you in, in a few months after I have some more availability or I can refer you to some people I know and trust. So that's path number one. That path doesn't really warrant itself to really positive financial growth, because even if you're delaying the project, you're still more money for the same amount of time than you would if you choose the second path, which is, okay, I'm not going to turn you away or you know delay this project. Let's try to figure out how I can get subcontractors or, or even employees to help me handle the surplus of work I have. So that was the path I went down, that second path. And I went down it at first using what I really do think is the prudent path, which is pull together a network of independent contractors who you trust, who you know, who have the same standards that you have, and basically strike a deal with them saying, I'm going to handle the sales and marketing, the invoicing, the money collection. You will get to focus on your craft. In exchange, I will be taking a you know, significant percentage of the project rate mm-hmm. and I will give you the rest. And that's the first path. That's the easiest to define because there's a very clear bottom line. It's basically, they work an hour, you get paid X, they get paid Y. So that's what I ended up doing for a while. And then I, then I ended up making the move to basically taking out a lease on an office, which I really didn't need to do, but I ended up needing, wanting to do that. And You start actually hiring full-time employees, which I would not recommend doing. You have a cash flow issue where cash flow tends to fluctuate month to month dramatically. Mm -hmm. Because one thing about employees is they're fixed expenses, whereas clients tend to be (laughs) fixed (laughs) expenses. Exactly, Um, with variable income. Because you might in October you might have a lot less active projects than you would in September. So. That also includes having either yourself or bringing on somebody who is competent in business development because you will need to always keep your pipeline full, especially as you scale to more uh, billable employees. And you're going to quickly realize that you're really going to need to stop wearing the hat of a technician and start wearing the hat of a business owner.
1: Mm-hmm, right.
3: Your life will revolve largely around accounting and payroll and Possibly even legal things, and maybe even HR, or really, mm-hmm. no, not maybe even HR. Definitely HR. It becomes a much different ballgame.
2: So, was that a hard transition for you? Because I know all three of us really started as programmers. I mean, we started programming because I assume that's what we love to do. I know Patrick and I love programming. I assume Brandon, you love programming as well. Was it really hard for you to switch into that more business managerial role?
3: It was because I'm really not that great of a manager. It's really. Oh, I think, I think your success
2: begs to differ, but. <laughs>
3: Well, no. I, I, frankly, I, I. There are people significantly better than I am who would have, who would have done a much better job than I, I did at times. You know, I, I made many, many mistakes. I made mistakes hiring. I made the the biggest mistake I ever made was thinking that everyone works the way I do. There just the mistakes were, you know, in, in the dozens. Mistakes that really ended up costing me a lot of money. So for the first really year and a half after creating this consultancy, I made less the money than I did as a freelancer, which sounds strange considering the way I looked at it before was, you know, if I have myself filling myself out full time, how could it be possible that when I have 10 people, I'm making less money than I was when it was just myself? It just, it doesn't make any, it doesn't make sense on paper, you know, back of the napkin calculations that I would be making less. But I did a time because of the fixed expense, variable income, needing to, uh, I've had to do things like I've had to cut a refund before, due to um, you know us basically really messing up when we were hired to do something, and it is ultimately the consultancy owner's fault. They're the ones who need to own up to it, but you're really responsible for other people's actions, which I'm really not the best at. But you know, it, it took some time to really get to be comfortable with that. Yeah.
0: So I think folks who might be a little early in their careers or less experienced with this um, might not have a very reality-based view on like the difference between, say, charge-out rates that the client is getting charged and what the business pays for that. So this was news to me, so I'll um, go into what I've learned about it for the edification of people here. When I was just getting started with my consulting business, back when my rate was $100 an hour, I remember talking with one of my uh, clients who also runs a consulting business. And I said that this math sounds very attractive. I will hire someone on, charge him out to clients at $100 an hour and pay him $80. And that's awesome because, you know, $20 an hour times 40 bucks a week uh, times 40 hours a week equals I get $800 of profit for doing nothing. And it is not possible to have a business be successful on that sort of margin because, you will have like collection issues on invoices. Employees al- always cost more than the sticker cost, even if you're paying them strictly on an hourly basis. It's unreal. The actual number that that like, math works out at, if you're charging out $100 an hour, is probably somewhere in like the $40 to $50 range to the, um, to the person. And perhaps even less if they're a salaried employee who gets paid every month, whether you have the pipeline or not the kind of universal experience of everyone when they first staff up to two people at the company or three people at the company is there's a few months where they do sharply less well than they were doing at when they was just one of them because when they were just one of one of them they are usually close to a full pipeline so they're billing out at you know 80 to 100 percent utilization and at the senior guys rate and then if you bring on two guys and pay them a market salary let's say um for Ruby on Rails programmer right now, let's say that a market salary is about $8,000 a month cash, which, crucially, costs you $12,000 a month because you have to pay for taxes, health insurance, uh, various overheads, and then paid vacation, all that fun stuff. So if you staff up to two people, your fixed cost is 24000 a month for those two people. And if you only bill them at 50% utilization... Then, if you're charging less than uh what six thousand dollars a week for their time, they're actually costing you money which by the way, you should be charging much more than six thousand dollars a week but that's neither here nor there so the the way that you eventually make money under the model is to consistently get your utilization rate up into like the seventy eighty percent and then only higher up once you're basically like exhausting everybody uh, exactly also by the way, the upside this was not obvious to me so I'll tell you what smart people have told me it is my natural inclination that when the business gets upside they it shares a substantial amount of that upside with the employees um, the actual way successful consultancies work is you you know if you promise your employee a salary of $100,000 a year or $8,000 a month you come in on payroll come hell or high water if you can't pay payroll then you don't eat but you still pay payroll in return for that, as far as there is a sure thing in the business world, the sure thing is that you make payroll every month. In return for that, that means when your business blows it out of the water, your employee does not get an automatic 20% raise. They get the sort of you know 3 to 5% raise that salaried employees generally expect, and then you get to take home a bit more money in return for all the risks that you've taken earlier in the business. Does that sound... It
3: sounds very. That's I, I, I can't. I can't begin to tell you how many times I missed uh, paying myself due to really what you're doing is when you when you have a consultancy, it's basically just a expanded freelancing operation, mm-hmm. and there's always risk in, in freelancing with clients paying on time and make it. You know, we always assume, or a lot of us, including myself, tend to naively assume that everything will just work well, mm-hmm. and that I will invoice and within 30 days I will get a check. For that amount and everything will go smoothly. What you tend to find is that that is the furthest thing from the truth. And secondly, your employees tend to, and you find this especially if you're recruiting from bigger companies that uh, have massive lines of credit or a lot of cash in the bank, and they've never had any payroll issues. When you have a small consultancy, you probably will have payroll issues. And it's very hard to approach an employee and say, oh, by the way, I know I'm supposed to pay you twice a month, but you're going to need to wait. Even one day really starts to breed, I don't want to say hostility, but...
2: Well, uh, it makes them um, nervous. Not being able to hit payroll, even by a day, is like, well, what's going on? Like, should I start polishing up my resume, start looking for somewhere else? It's like, it gets really Mm nerve-wracking.
3: And that's exactly what happens. And the thing I wish I would have done in hindsight was have... I heard from a very reputable source that whenever making a hiring decision even if you know you have the work for them immediately it's good to kind of set aside probably about thirty thousand dollars in in savings just for that one employee just as a as a buffer and the biggest thing that most freelancers who turn to consultant or consultancy owners mess up on isn't really having the work because nowadays there's more demand and supply.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: It's making sure that your cash flow situation is, is, is working well, is working fine. And cash flow issues are the biggest way to really mess up a good thing.
0: So one thing that a lot of younger technologists uh, are accustomed to is that you think coming from a consumer background that PayPal exists, credit cards exist, therefore transaction processing is more or less instantaneous. And that A, the traditional 30-day terms that you extend to your clients are absurdly generous because it should be very easy to pay people within 30 days if you have the money. And that B, if you actually give people 30-day terms, then they will invariably pay within 30 days. Ha, huh, coming from the three <laughs> people here, do we want to have like a, a complaint about clients anonymously session? What's the longest it's, ta- it's taken for an invoice to get paid? Infinitely.
2: Yeah, I, I would have okay. to say never paid.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. for, for, an, for an invoice, <laughs> let's scope it to invoice from clients you are happy to do business with. Good people. What's the longest it has ever taken to get paid? My, I think my record is nine months from... And you're still happy to do business with them? Yeah. All right.
3: Mine, mine was six months, but I, I can tell you a pro tip that has basically solved all of my cash flow issues. And that pro tip is to prepay everything. <laughs> and to be very, very hard about, oh, by the way, you haven't paid yet for next week's worth of work. I'm just not going to do any work until I get paid. I don't I don't know when it became popular or when it became standard to say, I'm going to do all this work for you. I'm going to shoulder this risk. And then I'm going to have this window of a month before I see anything, any sort of compensation for that. Mm-hmm. And I think it just became kind of standard. I, I know, especially if you're working with a big organization, where your client who you talk to each week probably isn't the one who signs the check.
1: Yeah.
3: It becomes almost standard for that to happen, but for smaller clients, first off, if you're going to have this delayed, I made the mistake once where I I billed twice a month. So on the 15th and 30th of each month I would send an invoice. They had 30 days to make that invoice, to pay that invoice. With one client, I had sent two invoices and granted we had about four people full time, so that tends to ramp up the amount on those invoices pretty quickly.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And then, and then I, I found out, I discovered, and this was months after starting working with this client, that, oh, by the way, we're out of money. And we had just delivered $60,000 in services that we can't really get. Sure, you can go the lawsuit route, you can do a lot of that kind of overhead work, but the problem is, according to my attorney, because they're behind a corporation, all they're able to do really is uh, request that their business's bank sends the amount that they owe. Mm-hmm. You can't go after their house. You can't go after their personal mm-hmm. assets. I my what I'm starting to do now, positioning wise, is telling people I'm not in the business of debt collection, and I've had to be a debt collector way too many times. So if you want to work with me, um, you're going to need to pay upfront.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: I do it in a very short one week. One week is this, you pay this before that week starts. If the check clears, then I, you know, we will work that week. That solved everything, honestly.
0: I'll put a little asterisk on that. Um, if you work at any company which is large enough to have a purchasing department, as a sole consultant or as the owner of a small consultancy, it is highly unlikely that you will have sufficient pull to pull that off. I'm uh, just putting that out there. Some of my mentors have made that abundantly clear for me. So like, I don't typically it, work it, at companies of that size, but uh, my more successful clients are like right on the cusp of that, where it's like, this is the contract. Um, it's kind of a take it or leave it sort of thing. The purchasing the purchasing cycle is what it is. Conversely, if you're working at any company that has a purchasing department, you should be charging more money than you can even countenance.
2: Now, the, and the other side of that is generally, if you're paying. And this is in my experience, you guys might have had different experience, but I've worked with a lot of larger companies, and I've never worried about them paying on time. Like, the big companies, they have the purchasing department, you send the invoice, they'll generally pay. Let me rephrase that in saying, I have had them dispute the amount of the um, invoice before, but I've never had no anyone just completely not pay.
0: So not completely not paid but there's a lot of big companies who purchase, the purchasing department as a matter of policy has a understanding of how that like 30 day clock works that is mm-hmm. different from the way that say a normal human being or a computer understands the way that 30 days is measured mm-hmm. for example you might assume that it's 30 days after the date on the invoice because that's what's actually like printed on the invoice mm-hmm. but The purchasing department might assume that it's 30 days from the start of the invoicing cycle after acceptance of delivery. And those two numbers are very, very different things. That can be like a three-month difference. Right. So if you're dealing with – not a client of mine, so I can name them. If you're dealing with Bank of America, you you will not budge the Bank of America purchasing department because they just don't care. Right. (laughs) They're, They're not graded on paying you In a quick fashion, in fact, to the extent that their, you know, their department has any KPIs, it's paying money that is owed as slowly as possible. (laughs) So, you know, as long as they're not getting sued on a weekly basis, they just don't care.
1: right.
3: Which when you, ha- when you have fixed expenses monthly within your company and it's not just your own income on the line anymore, that can be very risky. Yeah. And that's why make sure you have
0: the cash and make sure your cash flow situation is good before you start getting reckless. Is my, <laughs> and with large, the best companies, large companies like that, they know that dealing with them is the pain in the butt. That's one of the reasons that they pay so much for this kind of service in the first place man, this is like freelancer tip number one. Never underbid with the goal of getting more business. It never works out well. <laughs> Ever. Exactly. There is a reason that a full-time developer costs $100,000 a year, but the same developer working on a contract basis costs bare minimum 8000 a week. Everyone knows that there's overhead and risk involved. You have to make that back somewhere. Conversely, the business, they care more about themselves than they care about your financial situation. The things they get out of having a person available is that, you know, even in America, which is a very, many American states are right to work, which means that they can fire you at any time for any reason. It generally takes a lot of time to onboard a new employee, both in searching them, going through the candidates, hiring somebody, training them up, getting them to actually be productive on the project, evaluating their performance, seeing that it doesn't work out, and then firing them, even though that theoretically can get done in a day typically takes like three to six months after you've, you know, reached the... Uh, point where okay it's clear that it's not working out you just need to get all your ducks in a row to avoid a possible lawsuit. One of the reasons that companies come to consultants like us in the first place is that we can credibly promise that the given business need they have will be delivered like two weeks from now you know there is a number that they write that number on a check and BAM it gets done and in return for BAM it gets done the number on that check has zeros in it, lots of zeros.
3: One of the core things I really try to include in my book is the mistake I see a lot of people making with basically reverse engineering their prior salary to come up with oh, God, what their yes. rate should be. Yeah,
0: and particularly if your prior salary is twenty eight hundred bucks a month. High five to Keith and I. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's
3: there's a ton of these kind of rate calculators where you plug in your mortgage and you plug in you know all your living expenses and then it'll print out some sort of number. And that is, I didn't want to say it outright in the book, but that's really the, the selfish way. That's the way of where you're focused on yourself and you deduce a going rate based on your own needs. And that takes out of this equation entirely how your client you know receives value from the work you do for them and that is why the the selfish route the route based on okay i need you know five thousand dollars a month to live therefore my rate will be whatever that would be that is the way that i see so many people the rate that so many people go down and one of the amazing things is, is so i i have a product Call it PlanScope. And one of the things within PlanScope is people entering their hourly rate because we use that to determine certain metrics. And with one simple SQL query, I was able to really get a grasp of okay, what are people charging across the board? And there seems to be this invisible chasm between 50 to 75 an hour and 150 and up. And I wanted to really try to understand why it was like this. So I reached out to a, a handful of these different people, some on the high end, some on the low end and asked them outright. Not not really outright, but kind of <laughs> I circumvented the question a little and, and got to know them and got to know who they were. And it is, it is almost surreal how there really isn't a huge... The people charging three times as much are not three times as better developers. Mm-hmm. But the way that they perceive their own value and the, the way that they allow fear and uncertainty to rule their business is really what I found to be the reason for this huge discrepancy.
0: Something that Keith and I have found in our uh, consulting careers is that, let's see, both of our consulting careers are about two years old now, give or take? Maybe I'm... Mine's
2: more of a year. yeah. Yeah.
0: So I think probably we've... The difference between my first going rate and my current going rate is more than 7.5 times. I think Keith is also ranked up quite a bit. I'm not 7.5 times a better Ruby on Rails programmer or A-B test implementer or email a marketer than I was two years ago. I'm better, but not like seven and a half times better. What I'm seven and a half times better at is identifying the right clients and then communicating to them that working with me is going to do wonderful things for their business, and then actually delivering on that. And uh, to be honest, I'm probably like undercharged by a lot, even though if again, won't say the number out loud because there's absolutely no good that can possibly come out of quoting your age <laughs> publicly. But uh it might be shocking to a lot of people who read my blog which it's funny it's like you know how many times do you read it something that's like okay i've made x company y percent which we all know is over a million dollars but if i were to like say you know if i were to put a number on what my week cost a lot of people who like me and who want me to succeed would be like oh wow that's way 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 too much for only making people a million bucks
2: well of course cuz you're just the bingo card guy right and uh, you make bingo cards for teachers?
3: <laughs> I might actually I might I don't agree that rates should be something that's completely private. I found that when I started to publicly kind of put my rates out there, it, it's helped me really initially get a much better and it might be different for you because most of your referrals probably come via referrals, mm-hmm. you know through through who know about you. <laughs> you know, I was talking to uh, one of the owners of Thunderbolt Labs last week in Dublin. Uh, randall thomas and we were talking about one of the things i reference them in my book and i say they do they put publicly on their on the front page of their website they say this is what we charge per hour you need to book us in pairs of two and this is how much it'll cost if you want us to train you for a few days and in talking with him i mean i've done largely the same thing and in talking with or with him i realized that It provokes a lot of interest. People see a high number and they they kind of scratch their head and say, wow, you know, he must have a lot of cojones to be putting this large dollar sign on the front page of his website. Because the traditional way of approaching things is be vague, get people to contact you. Now you have a lead and then pull their price, you know, right at the last moment. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: And that's like standard sales, right? You know, it's hard to acquire a lead. Therefore don't put any impediments in between you and having a, a new lead in your crm mm-hmm. but what we found is it's reduced the amount of qualifying we've had to do which is always a good thing oh, and allowed us to get really off the bat a different client who treats us differently than i think they would otherwise right so you know it might be something it's hard to split test a Consultancy website because you know gauging conversions probably isn't as easy as it might be otherwise for a product site, right. but it's something to try out. I, I'm actually I'm starting to be swayed in the direction of publicly putting up your rate. It's like on a menu.
2: You talk about I forget the wording you used, but uh, essentially vetting the customer, right? Vetting the new clients. And I've had so many, and I'm sure you guys have had the same thing. I've had so many clients that because I don't say my rate upfront we have the huge discussion we talk about the proposal and everything and i'm like this is how much it's going to cost and they're like oh we don't have that type of money and there goes five ten hours fifteen hours of my time having thought about all this and and you you chalk it up to a loss i mean that's that's just how the business runs but to be able to prevet them like you said saves a lot of time and a lot of headache and heartache
0: honestly i think that's kind of a If it takes you 5 to 10 hours to get to the point where you understand if someone is willing to drop 10000 bucks, that might be an opportunity to improve your qualification process. Obviously, I'm out of the price range of a lot of people who come to talk to me for this, and that's okay. But I don't think I have ever had a period of longer than an hour where I was totally in the dark about whether someone was a good prospect for a consulting relationship or not.
2: I have had clients where... I have given a vague estimate at first just to test budgets and no batting of eyes, no nothing. And then when I come back with the proposal, which is exactly that, they're like, oh, by the way, we have no money. So I think there are people who maybe not on purpose, but they either think that our time is not worth so much or they just want to get a free consultation.
3: So one thing that really helps is when somebody contacts you saying, "I, I might be interested in hiring you, have kind of a list of a few questions you send them, one of them being, do you have over X amount of dollars for this project? That's not saying you're not publicly putting out their rate, but you'd be amazed how many people have, have contacted us as a consultancy where it's very it's very obvious that we have a lot of people on payroll mm-hmm. saying, hey, can you build a thousand dollars? And we get that. And unless you want to be putting up with things like that, the quicker you can qualify, the better. Because the last thing you want to do is to you know kind of kind of lead them on and then spend all this time and then, and one of the reasons I do like putting my rate uh, public is it makes it less likely that people will try to negotiate that it's a lot like you know if you have a restaurant and you charge ten dollars for a sandwich it's rare that people are going to say can you give it to me for eight you know when you have an kind of expected set price I found that people will stop
0: trying to to go lower. I have the utmost respect for both of you. I think it would not really work out very well for me. One reason is that my rate goes up on a fairly regular basis, and I don't want my rate from three months ago being quoted as evidence against me in the rate-going-up discussion. And also, um, the client pool is kind of heterogeneous. I don't know if I actually pronounced that word right, because English is not my native language anymore. But, (laughs) like, you know... Kind of the, the client who is most in my wheelhouse is a company, say, in the like Fog Creek zone where they've got, um, won't get Fog Creek's numbers out obviously, but like eight figures of revenue, software company, two dozen employees, uh, two, three, four dozen employees, whatever. But that's not like 100% of the people I will ever do business with, right? And if not a client, not a reasonable prospect for being a client, but they could call up any day now. If Google calls me and asks for my thoughts on making AdWords into a plus 2% more effective product uh, project, the rate that I quote Google will not be within like, an order of magnitude of the rate that I quote anybody else.
2: And that goes, yeah, that's, that's, back, and that goes back to the value. Because the amount of value, Google's bottom, adding 2% to Google's bottom line is not the same as adding 2% to a company that's only making a million a year, for example.
3: So um, no, I think that's I think that's a very valid point, point. and I think I, I, I think, I mean, I know for a fact you and I do different forms of consulting. Mm-hmm. my, I deal with a lot of unknown startups and people who are you know single founders or, or uh, you know they are the CEO of a smallish company. It's harder to gauge whether they can afford me, whether you know it, it's very easy to to Google Fog Creek and and know who they are, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know, but I think I think if I was doing more of the kind of consulting you were, I might not publicize it as much,
0: or at all. What's the old, I think my favorite post that was ever on Hacker News was about this guy saying that, do. there's all the animals get together, and they try to discuss what's the best way to be an animal, and the lion says, oh, you need to run fast and eat things and spend most of the day sleeping, and the ants say, oh, you need to have uh, 10,000 of us and uh, the monkeys say you need to eat fruit and live in trees. And similarly, you know, what's the best way to run a consultancy? There's a lot of successful ways to run a consultancy. A lot of successful you know, offerings that you can have for clients, uh, charging mar- models, yada, yada, yada. With that said, there's some like definite anti-patterns like charging too little money. And there's also some things that I think are a win for almost everybody. One which I would like to suggest to both of you because I know you both charge on an hourly basis best tip i've ever gotten was to start charging weekly it makes life so much better um, yeah both because it tends to make scheduling better um if you charge hourly you will often end up having weeks that don't kind of like cleanly bucket right that mm-hmm. decreases your effective utilization rate which like we discussed earlier has pretty major impacts for the business um another being that and people kind of have a A very constrained dynamic range for the amount of money an hour of someone's time is worth. Um, You know, they typically know what their every hourly salary they've ever worked for is, and they're all low numbers. And they know what every other hourly employee's numbers are, and those are low numbers too. It gets difficult once you get you know past um, 100, 200 bucks an hour to walk up an hourly rate, and people feel inclined to make adjustments to that hourly rate in ways which are they seem reasonable when you're talking about a number you know that low number but they're huge with respect to the business like if you quote 250 they might say ah 250 is a little tough i can do 225 and that's 10% off of you know your bottom line right there mm-hmm. whereas you know for just a little like we moved one number on a piece of paper by $25 where you know if i'm talking to a client and i was disposed to talk disposed to have the price that I quote be negotiable, which is not something I'm disposed to do very often anymore. But $5,000 off the, like my client really just, they need to have a win to take back to their boss. Then I can slice $5,000 off whatever number I quoted with without affecting a price by that much percentage-wise. You know? Right. If you're quoting a week rate, $25 moves your outcome not at all. Whereas if you're quoting an hourly rate, it moves it quite a bit. So...
3: I've actually started shifting towards a weekly rate also. And one thing I would advise everyone is to A, B test your new leads, you know, try, you should always be experimenting with different tactics about what, you know, whether you're pricing by the day, the hour, the week, and everything else. But one of the things that I found, and here's kind of a punch list for why weekly is better. First of all, if you're charging hourly, you might as well just be a contracted employee. And they're going to get very particular about scheduling, you know, they're going to
1: that is look at so line true. items. Mm.
3: Yeah, they're gonna look at line items. They're gonna start being very particular because, frankly, you don't have a product. You're you have, you have you're selling time. Whereas when you approach it as a you know as a weekly flat rate product, that's really what you have, and you can kind of there's no nitpicking that goes on with. Well, you know, I actually like the way Bob worked over Jim. Or if you have any project management overhead, every client on earth hates seeing that as a line item. Mm-hmm you can include that in that one set price without needing to kind of justify those, those line items, you know, come invoice day.
0: Right. One thing that happens to me a lot, not a lot, but just a fact of life, clients will not always have their act together. I was once working at a particular consulting site and, you know, my point of contact for whatever reason uh, wasn't going to be available for the next two days. And I said to them, all right, no problem. I'll just, you know, use your Wi-Fi and uh, I won't invoice you for the next two days. And because the guy that brought me in was a kind of a mentor of mine, he said, shut up, never say that again to anybody. If the client, you know, if you're working on a weekly rate and the client doesn't have their act together, that's fine. The client is paying for not having their act together. Um, whereas if you're working on an hourly rate, if you send someone an invoice that has a line item of 16 hours waited for Bob to get back from vacation, your client is <laughs> going to be very, very pissed off. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, if you're not well established enough, or you're not comfortable enough to go up to a weekly rate, even going to a daily rate, it'll get you all scheduling benefits, and you know you won't be micromanaged like you're a teenager uh, working for a restaurant anymore. You'll also tend to kind of capturing the benefit of things that were previously getting lost to inefficiencies in the business. Um, I think, uh, and you know, one of our mutual friends, Amy Hoy, runs a time tracking software. So I don't want to slack on time tracking too much, but I think that uh, time tracking is kind of a, it's a patch, like it's a technological slash process patch on top of a hole in the business model, which is that, you know, if you are explicitly selling time, then Accurately tracking the time is really, really important because you will be like leaking time out of your bucket and then that leaks money for the business. If you switch to a day rate, then your entire time tracking solution is a calendar that has circles or checks on it. No matter how the business or, you know, your particular schedule for that day or importantly, your client's schedule for that day works out, you will stop leaking quite so much value in sort of like dead weight loss for the business. So we're at about an hour and ten minutes into the interview, and there's one more topic that we would like to talk. So let's move a little bit away from the making awesome consulting businesses thing. So Brennan, you just released a product, which is uh, online course slash ebook offering. Um, Keith has significant amount of experience working with info products as well, and I am dipping my toes into the water later this month with a online video course offering to teach people how to do lifecycle emails better. Let's talk a little bit about what we've learned about that, but before we get into what we've learned about it, I know I had a comfort comfort level issue with this before I got started. What's the difference between what we are doing and these scammy info marketers who are hawking books on AdWords about make money online with the tip that some uh, mom discovered in her spare time?
2: Absolutely nothing. Nothing. We are just <laughs> as horrible
0: as that. <laughs> Stab in the face, Keith. Stab in the
3: face. <laughs> I think, I think we're using, like, if you look at my, I remember I posted something that got to Hacker News on how I had originally sold, I think, the first $2,000 in sales, mm-hmm. and it had a link to the sales site. And people, <laughs> there were people who said, wow, you look like a scammer because I use bolded fonts and you know italics in, in some places, and I lead things in with questions like, are you ha- unhappy with your rate? Do you hate the idea of doubling, you know, does doubling your rate scare you? you know, kind of the, the tried and true, really, mm-hmm. uh, marketing tactics mm-hmm. that need to be done if you want to quickly capture somebody's attention and then convince them to keep reading. Yeah, I don't I don't think I mean, we joke and we, we you know, laugh at a lot of these kind of info products that you see on late night television, or you see these little landing pages for how to work from home and make a million dollars. I think the the tactics, we use tend to be pretty similar. You, know, you have a, a clear call to action. You have a, you know, a, a headline that captures people's attention. I don't think there's a clear difference in medium mm-hmm. no. that we're, you know between us and, and them. <laughs> yeah, Listen, I think there's a difference in
2: product. Right. I think not only is there a difference in product, and this is not something that our general customers will see, but I think that the back end, and I'm not talking about technology, I'm talking about how we provide content to the community is much different than the sleazy marketers. Because the sleazy marketers, they really don't give anything back. But, I mean, I know, um, Brennan, you talked about how you had um, used your email list and how you had emailed people and funneled people and made your $2,000 in pre-sales. I mean, Patrick is pretty much famous for always talking about his sales numbers and what he did and what his actual sales numbers have been as long as as far as bingo card creator so I think both of you and I try to do this as well are very open with the business aspect of what you're doing so even though I mean info products are info products there's no way to really draw that clear line between scammy and not scammy other than a, how each individual person feels but at the same time I feel that you guys give a lot more back to the community showing how you are building this, showing how this is working and teaching other people who have not bought your product.
0: I think that there has to be an element to the discussion where does the product actually provide value? The biggest difference between what we do and you know what the typical clickbank vendor does is that, you know, the three quick tips for slimming down your tummy will not actually work. I don't know, have you seen my tummy?
2: I, I have a six-pack right now.
0: I do not want to see your tummy, Keith.
2: It, it, it's, a, it's beer. The six-pack is beer.
0: Uh, you know, we're largely coming from this, and, you know, we're not selling to unsavvy folks who typically get taken to the cleaners with uh, make money online, which, by the way, 99% of them will not make a single dollar. We're selling to savvy and, frankly, very, very skeptical professionals who are capable of... You know, evaluating claims that we make that you know our advice will make their business better, just like they're capable of evaluating claims that uh, two weeks of our time will create a software product that will make their businesses better. And you know what we sell actually does work.
3: So I took Amy
0: Hoy's 30
3: by 500 course, and one of the principles in the course is uh, what are called e-bombs, which are education bombs. <laughs> so you can't just market. Especially to the audience that that I'm marketing to. You can't just throw them a a sales site, right? What I found to work really well is to basically give a lot of information away for free. You know, whether it be, hey, this is how, this is, if you're looking at writing a book, here's some of the the things I ran into um, when I was writing my book, and here's what worked and didn't work. What you're doing through that is you're breaking down any initial trust barriers that people intrinsically kind of erect. Mm-hmm. I'm getting people to, basically what we're doing is we're getting people to, to trust us. And then the natural segue is to say, if you, if you appreciated what I had to say here, and this kind of jives with what you're looking for, I also have a product that will do X. Which you might be interested in, and that's the proverbial call to action. And you can do this through blogging. You can do this through a lot of different outlets. And I mean, that that I think the biggest instrument to success, both with PlanScope and now the book, has been doing that. I mean, I've done articles for freelancers on, uh, you know, how how to how to estimate a new project or something, and you know that will get shared to quite a few people. And then basically, what I'm saying is my product. Is the this philosophy that is in this post, if you like this post, it's represented in this product that I've built and you might enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be a huge win in terms of making not only is it a free kind of avenue for sales, because it's your time that you're spending writing these kind of educational blog posts, but they really, you know, they, they, they really establish yourself as an authority in subject X. Mm-hmm.
0: And that helps tremendously. Yep. So that's kind of like, I already hate myself for what I'm about to say. I'm going to say that it's content marketing 101. Why do I hate that? Number one, because I hate the word content. And number two, because I think that's unnecessarily disparaging because that is a tactic that indeed will actually work. And that many, many very savvy people, including a lot of my consulting clients who did not get up to, you know, $20 million a year in software sales by being stupid, don't necessarily used to nearly the uh, potential that they could be using it to. But there's like variations on that that have made it more effective in my experience. Um, one of them is if you write a post of interest to your market or to people who are adjacent to your target market, a more effective call to action at the end of it than I help people set consulting rates, BTW, I have a ebook on doubling your consulting rate, you should buy it, is to say, if you are interested in this subject, I have a newsletter, and if you sign up to my newsletter, I will give you one free thing right now, which will help you out on this. And also, over the course of the next few weeks, I will send you things you will enjoy. And given that you have just proven that you, know, you have some level of expertise in something, people are, will tend to think that the incentive that you are dangling uh, in front of them is likely to be valuable which you should make it valuable obviously, but they're, they're likely to trust that, okay, it's gotta be at least as good as this blog post that I just read, right? So you will get their consent to get email from you. And then converting people via email just absolutely raffle stops over the conversion rates you get on websites. Um, you get to control the entire experience. You get to kind of like be within their decision-making cycle over weeks rather than over minutes. Uh, you get to uh, produce more trust with them. It's just an epic win in every possible way. To see more, um, <laughs> Sign up for my email list. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Not too subtle there.
0: <laughs> Seriously This is actually, I think uh, Brendan, you covered it in your book, but even consultancy should probably have some sort of uh, get a email. Uh, you know We will give you some sort of like a report that we've prepared about your, uh, your industry or your use of solving some problem in your business in return for your email address. And uh, even for selling consulting services, it's an epic win. I started an email list in May, and I think I launched it. And within like two hours, I had an email address from a CEO at a company which was um, a company I would very much like to do business with, to put it mildly. And so you know, the obvious thing if if a CEO has just asked, "Hey, I would love to get your emails," is to kind of send him an email, right? And that worked out kind of well for all parties. So even if I, you know, never had any sort of product to offer the list, it would be totally worth it for me to continue dripping out content. So
3: I guess and I think especially for consultancies, the kind of clients we have mm-hmm. being MBAs, business people tend to not think email is as bad as some of us do. Oh god, yes. Um,
0: oh yeah. <laughs> I think by the so... way that engineers radically overestimate how bad they truly think email is. I have I have a very, like, engineer-focused audience. Pretty much a majority of people who are on my blog are kind of squarely in that wheelhouse. Many of them report hate getting email. I have, what, 4,000 of them who get an, a weekly email from me. And, you know, I ask people to reply if they like it. And people routinely tell me things like, I have never liked getting email from anyone else, but man, this is awesome. Which, not to toot my own horn there, but it's it's not because you know, I produce emails that are better than anyone else in the world. It's just because that everybody, regardless of whether they say they hate getting email or not, or they hate being marketed to, if you produce something which is producing genuine value from them, they're going to receive genuine value from it. Exactly. So we were talking about tripping about content. Let me give you a quick pro tip here. A lot of people use email as a sort of a newsletter thing where everybody on the list gets the same thing at the same time which kind of gets you on a content treadmill for your email list. Uh, one way to avoid getting the content treadmill is to, like, I started with, you know, nothing written for the email list. So the first week I, you know, wrote something. I think it was on um, software as a service pricing. And then the second or third week, I wrote something on selling to enterprise businesses. Now, getting on a content treadmill would be bad if I could never get value out of those two things again. So what I set up was, and this is very trivial to do in MailChimp or your mail service provider of choice, I set up an autoresponder where anyone who signs up for the email list today gets the email about software service pricing, which is totally new to them, tomorrow. And then they will get the totally new to them email about B2B stuff a week from now, which means Mm -hmm. that those emails have created value for thousands more people than they would if they had been buried in the archive somewhere or if like many of my blog posts, they just, you know, were written once and then totally not discoverable unless you had been uh, paging through the archives from 2008. Man, people, we auto commoditize our content in a lot of ways. Speaking of commoditization of content, um, the perceived value that people get from an email versus a, say, blog post or is very, very different. My experience has been that over the years, I've kind of developed a style that works for me. I typically write 2,000, 4,000, or 8,000 words a big, meaty, like, treatise on a subject at once. And that is what I do. And the typical reader on my blog will be on the blog for about three minutes, which means they're either skimming or they're not reading much of it. uh, Or they're absolutely superhuman with their reading speeds. And then, you know, it's done, and uh, maybe they'll be back in two weeks. But if I send the same caliber of stuff to the email list, I get, like, lots of really good comments that Are both motivational in that, you know, I love getting my praise button pushed. And also the comments, you know, really indicate that they've read and interacted with that email. Like they've, you know, I ask people explicitly, write me back and tell me about the change you made in your business as a result of this advice. And people have written me back and said things like, "Um, as a result of the software as a service email, we changed our software pricing. It increased sales by 90% which was happy. I got a blog post out of that one. But um, you know, I'm not happy because I got to blog about it. I'm happy because the business is able to make payroll every month because of that decision.
3: When you're reading a blog post, you can you know it's a webpage, right? You know you're looking at you know just something that is sitting up on the Internet. It's not personalized. It's not for you at all. Mm-hmm. Emails are how we communicate directly to people. Right. And mm-hmm. when that content shows up in their in- inbox especially if you start it with hi first name or even hey there, if you don't have their name that I think, and I don't know the I'm speculating here, but I'm I'm willing to bet that the psychological implications that emails are usually targeted to me makes me more willing to read through it and to absorb the content than I would be if I would just stumbled upon that same exact email put as a blog post.
2: And it also the. Um, depends on the positioning of the email so I'm on all my clients email lists and I actually work with my clients building email funnels for them and I even though I know it is my client and I know that I'm signed up on their list so I'm getting about 1012 emails of theirs every day from their blog posts and stuff really looking at the way that the emails are structured, I feel a, an emotional response depending on that. So, so I have some customers who want to put their blog name first and then the title after that or whatever. And when I see emails like that, they don't have the personalization and the subject line says title of blog and then blog title or post title. And it feels like a form letter and those generally get deleted right away. And then there are other ones that it's like, hi, Keith how are you doing? Or, hi, Keith, I just saw this great email. Or, I just saw this great tweet. Or, I just saw this great blog post. And, I see it coming from my client. It has their name in the sender. It has great blog post as the subject. And it says, hey, Keith, in the front. I think, oh, they're emailing me. And I know, I'm the one who wrote these emails, or I'm the one who set up the (laughs) funnel. And yet, at the same time, I'm like, oh, he's got a mail for me. And, I know that like, it's automated, but at the same time, there's just that visceral response. So I think you're right on with that. Email is the way we communicate with people on a one-to-one level, and even if we know that they are form mails, it still connects with us.
0: I think also people have a much different mindset when they're in their email client versus being in their browser. Like if you think what's probably above and below the email you're writing versus what's above and below the blog post you're writing what is above and below an email that someone is reading is probably important work uh, emailing other knowledge workers and you know knowledge workers spend all their all their day in their inbox because that's their job right you know it'll be their boss asking for a status report above it and a client asking for you know feedback on yada yada below it and then your email is sandwiched in between there and kind of inherits the presumed importance from all the other stuff that's in their inbox that day whereas you know, if you write a blog post, people are probably going to be consuming it through, like, Twitter, or some sort of aggregator, or an RSS reader. And, honestly, if you're writing blog posts who are decent, to a first approximation, you are more important than the stuff that, that your blog post is found with. Like, um, alright, I'll just go out and say, I'll go out and say this. For the 30 things that are on the top of Hacker News at any given time, if one of my posts is up there, it should be a lot better than 15 of them. It's probably a lot better than more than 15. Like, if it wasn't, I shouldn't have written that article. It's seen in that, like, um, the context where the stuff around it is dross, it is more likely to be perceived as internet dross that I should, like, bookmark and maybe read if I have extra time to waste. Where this, if it's seen in the context of important work, then it's going to inherit that, like, aura of being important work itself. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the major reasons I see so much more, like, I literally see... 10x more engagement on an absolute figure for email that I send out. And my typical email gets seen by like 3,000 people versus 3,000, 4,000 people versus my typical blog post getting seen by 20,000 plus. So 10x engagement on one seventh of the audience size is what, as like a comparable 70x engagement? Like that just, you know, and that isn't an exact number, but it would blow your mind.
3: I mean, it's, it's incredible how when I first... Launched the book, I didn't launch it to a vacuum because I had my products mailing list. And within half an hour of the initial email I sent out to everyone on it, announcing my book and letting them know how it would benefit them or how it could benefit their business. And chances are, if they use my product, or a consultant. I mean, within half an hour, there was over $1,500 in sales, which, I mean, it, you know, I know Patrick used the term a lot, printing money, and that's the best, you know, one of the best ways to do that. Is I know for a fact I can write an email right now, delivering some immediate value to my subscribers, upsell the book through it to an unrelated list, my my plan scope mailing list, Mm -hmm. and it will generate sales. And having a strong, healthy email list that trusts you and is used to engaging with you is a very good thing. Like the worst thing I I think the way a lot of people mess up is they build an email list and then they're silenced for months and then they try to sell you. You know, it's like, Ooh, yeah. silent, 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 Sell. They wonder why Mailchimp starts yelling at them about their unsubscribe count being so high. Mm-hmm. Um, it needs to be. It should be a gradual drip sales, right. I guess, campaign. Right. Um, and I don't, I don't want to go too much into that because that's
2: that's one of the big things that Patrick talks about in his product. But you want to go into it?
0: All right, all right. Great. Outstanding amounts of value, and then charge only the two percent of people who want to pay for it. Sounds good. Sounds good.
2: So we actually talked about this when we did our mentoring talk about email funnels. Right. Um, so and
0: backstory on that, Keith and I went to Silicon Valley last year to 500 startups where I'm a mentor. And um, we talked with their incubated companies about how to kind of choose their marketing. Cause most of them are like us from more of an engineering background. They're just getting started in their business owner of a software as a service company career. And we thought we could help them out a bit on, uh, actually acquiring customers for that. And one of the things was making drip email campaigns, which, Keith, what is a drip email campaign?
2: A drip email campaign is pretty much what you had described. You take emails that you have already or emails specifically customized for the drip. And when a person signs up to your newsletter, it doles them out over a set period of time. So let's say you have a two-week drip campaign. So the first day they sign up, they get one email. Then on the 3rd, the 7th, the 8th, the 12th, or whatever days you want, they get another email. And the purpose of this is to eventually sell them on a product. But what you do over the drip, like um, Brendan said and like Patrick said, if you just are radio silence for a month and then you say, hey, buy my product, no one's going to buy your product. So what you do is... You Well, you're the one with the product factor, why don't you explain it?
0: Sure. So, and just for total avoidance of doubt here, people are only getting these emails because they've explicitly asked to get emails from you, um, typically because you've given them some sort of incentive with the quid pro quo for that incentive being uh, going to get it to them. Uh, often just the, you position the drip campaign such that the drip campaign is providing value by itself. A great example of this that I did for a client of mine, which I can talk about publicly, Is for WP Engine. Uh, They do high end WordPress hosting. So there is a page on their website that you can go to an automated diagnostic of your WordPress site, and it'll say, it took 4.7 seconds to load. You could make it load faster if you turned on Gzip. Here's how to do that, yada, yada, yada. And on that page, it will ask you, do you want to take a free one-month course in improving the speed, scalability, and security of your WordPress site? If so, give us your email address and click yes. And they get a very high opt-in rate because it's clearly aligned with the thing that brought people to the page in the first place. Um, So what does the Drip campaign do? The goal is we're going to educate, persuade, and only then sell. We're going to start by just giving people outstanding amounts of value in terms of educational uh, content that we're delivering for them. For example, in the WP Engine thing, we're going to send you an email about various uh, under the hood uh, server slash code tweaks that you can make to your WordPress site that since you're not a technical person, you probably weren't aware of, and that these things will make your site faster gzip is a, is a setting here's how you turn it on in apache httpd.conf it will always make a site faster if gzip is off right now turn your gzip on always wins you know that sort of thing is a win for the user and they will see it being a win and then we come back to them a couple of days later previously we talked about increasing the speed of your site scalability is subtly different from speed we'll explain to you why here's the sort of architecture you would use to make a wordpress site more scalable you know, so that it would stay up. It was on the front page of Hacker News, which if you've been on Hacker News for a while, you know that Hacker News crushes WordPress sites on a fairly frequent basis, including mine more than once. Or Apache Keep Alive, stab in the face. But the email will explain that <laughs> Apache Keep Alive is kind of a stab in the face option if you want your <laughs> WordPress sites to survive. Anyhow, so the idea is that we're gradually building up trust in the user via educating them about this stuff. They start to trust us as an expert about this because, hey... Are experts about it and someone who is in their corner and after we've established that we are credible experts on this thing then we say okay you have these problems they are connected to this thing that we have been talking about we have a solution to these problems let's talk a little bit about that and now you are no longer just some anonymous page that they've clicked to on the internet you are their trusted expert at this field. You've been in their inboxes for the last two weeks, making their lives better. They are much more inclined to trust representations that you make about your product. So, for example, if you say that, um, you know, if you just come up to say, come up to someone and say, you should probably pay two hundred bucks a month for blog hosting, people would have significant reservations about that. Um, I know I would. I actually do pay two hundred dollars a month for Word uh, for WordPress engine, uh, simply because they. You know, convinced me over a period of time talking to their CEO that the uh, optimizing the speed and scalability of my site was just a black hole of time and that I should you yeah. know just let them take care of that and the drip campaign lets you do that sort of like credibility boosting thing in a scalable fashion over many many thousands of customers without you having to continually do sales discussions it leads into sales discussions a lot because you can tell people in your trip emails, "Hey, do you have any questions about this? We love getting emails from you. Just hit reply." You know, it's a kind of a hybrid of both a low-touch sales offering and can transition into high-touch sales where that's required. That's by the way.
3: And the, the same. Oh, go right ahead. These these same exact principles, by the way,
0: apply directly
3: to consulting. If you. Um, and I think actually Patrick, you're the one who, who mentioned this is an idea. But if you if you do something like how to go about hiring a your, your first web developer and or how to how to make sure that you're basically business centered educational material for people who are on your list and might end up hiring. You. The more you do this, you can I mean, I've literally closed because I've, I've done this We've we've hosted user groups and conferences and things like that. I've closed six figure deals in 15 minutes because there's no sales needed. They, you know, they understand, I've educated them enough about this arena that they're entering into, you know, hiring people to build custom software. I've educated them and they've also kind of, I've I've inadvertently swayed them over into the way I think about that. Mm -hmm. I become the benchmark, right? Mm -hmm. They're, you know, when they, if they look at my competitors, They're looking at it from the benchmark that I've set forth. This
0: is uh, like and start this, guys. It's probably the most important thing in the interview. If you if you are in the position of educating someone, you largely get to determine their outlook on all further things in that space. If you you know if you are already someone's trusted expert on the subject at issue, sales is man. It isn't even really a sales discussion anymore. You sit down at a table and you're just talking. It's just the natural outgrowth of the discussion you would have earlier. Like, you know, earlier the discussion was how would you, you know, if we've talked for the last couple of uh, weeks and I've explained why A-B testing is a win and um, told you how I would structure an A-B testing and how you can make your organization do more A-B testing and whatnot. And if the, you know, CEO sits down with the laptop at me and pulls open a page and, and starts saying, what would you do on this? Then... That is suddenly a sales discussion, but nobody at the table perceives it as being a sales discussion. It's a foregone conclusion. I'm winning that engagement.
3: And if you tend to be, you know, I tend to be naturally shy Mm -hmm. and there is, if you don't want to come off, if you don't want to live, if you don't want marketing your freelancing business to be like selling a car, this approach Will make it so, like you said, it, it's not even sales anymore. It's it's then you're you're figuring out the details of a transaction, mm-hmm. and the need to convince has already been done. And that's really what sales is, right? You're convincing somebody to use your to buy your product, and the the sales has already been done through valuable material that you're giving away mm-hmm. to these per- prospective clients, mm-hmm. and that has worked wonders for my business.
0: Yeah. Same here. One of the largest. Uh, sources of business for me obviously uh, word of mouth plays a big big role in pretty much all services businesses um, especially for consultancies too but one of the sort of like uh, make my bone steps was publishing so much on my blog about kind of the the things that I end up doing for clients which is largely um, ways that engineers can improve marketing outcomes at the client because i have a certain amount of expertise in that area and because i am seen as having a certain amount of expertise in the area which those are two very different things guys you can be a total genius but if nobody knows about it it doesn't help you it makes the sales discussion radically easier it's not even sales at that point it's more like order taking They've come to the decision that they want to do this. You are the natural person that they would want to do this with because, A, they feel a bit of soft social obligation to you. I mean, if you have a favorite teacher from college, wouldn't you want to do business with them versus J J-random person who happens to be in the same industry? And also, you know, you've so informed their thinking about this subject that if they were, like, you're the benchmark that they hold everybody else up against. Um, I've literally had um, consultant clients say that, you know, I went, won the engagement over another firm that very highly regarded firm in the industry. And uh, I said, oh, well, I'm just curious. Can you help me help out my business here? Why did I win the engagement over competing firm X? And they said, oh, yeah, we had a talk with that guy, but he kept disagreeing with you. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but the only person who's going to agree with me 100% of the time is me. So that literally means that Sorry. I'm the only person that can get hired for this job. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> well here, here's the thing,
3: Patrick, imagine cloning yourself and this clone has none of the comments you've put on Hacker News, none of the you know the blog posts you've written, none of the podcasts, mm-hmm. and they are offering the same exact services as you are. The yeah. amount of work they would need to put in to get probably the kind of rates you justify <laughs> it would, would never be
0: a mountain. Yeah, it would and it never it, happen. I want to clarify this because this is something that hacker newsers sometimes get wrong. Um, The fact that I'm patio 11 and quote-unquote internet famous, which is a little over-exaggerated by the way, only a couple thousand people know who I am. Uh, They're the right couple thousand people, but only a couple thousand people know who I am. The fact that I have that internet reputation is not the sole driver of the consulting business. Um, I get one of the main things that drives the consulting business is kind of the hush-hush, uh, discussion between CEOs on what happened the last time I got hired for an engagement. But getting in the door like the first at kind of, uh, the first couple of high profile companies was largely uh, the sort of uh, publishing/ speaking slash talking on podcasts and whatnot, and being public with my numbers, that sort of thing uh, that I'd been doing in my early years. And that would have been, there's ways you can get around that, for example, by networking. But uh, Keith and I live out in Ogaki, you in Gifu what? Prefecture, which is a place that we love, but it's kind of the middle of nowhere relative to yeah. tech companies with 10 to $100 million of revenue, And there are not really solid options for networking with, um, you know, we're not exactly rubbing elbows with Joel Spolsky on one hand and Paul Graham on the other here in Ogaki. Uh, The tech mixers. So, to the extent that networking matters, and guys, capital N, capital M, networking matters. It's kind of all here. So, for at least my career, the kind of internet participation was a major sort of greaser of the wheels. That kind of got it going. And after that, um, well, after and concurrent with that, being able to execute and actually deliver the kind of results that my clients are hoping for is majorly important. If it was routinely the experience of clients that they paid uh, the money they think I was worth and that no needle the company moved as a result of the engagement. You know, my career would fold up like an origami crane. But it happens to be the case that at least some companies working with me get a substantial amount of value out of that. And BTW, every time the company gets a substantial amount of value out of it, they immediately attempt to get a public case study out of that. It's been a major win for me over the years. Okay. Which... Um, I never explain it to the company as, oh, you should totally help me get my next 10 engagements. Um, It's typically, hey, as a matter of fact, I have a bit of an internet platform, and why don't we get a mutual win here out of talking about this such that, you know, you get your name in front of my audience, and I get my name in front of your audience attached to a number, like say I made you a million dollars. Yeah, that sort of thing works.
2: And you you say that it is for getting your clients, but... more than that, it is a mutual win. Because let's take WP Engine, for example. I had worked with WP Engine before you started using them. And we had actually talked about that a lot. And I had never seen them on Hacker News until you blogged about them. Mm-hmm. And now I see them once every week or once every two weeks or so. They get mentioned for something. Mm-hmm. So there is a huge positive feedback loop for getting their case studies up there.
0: BTW, just does enormously respect the Hacker News audience, I have never and will never take money for placing somebody on Hack News, but I no. um yeah. I do generally uh, talk about things that are interesting to me on my blog, particularly when clients give me the go ahead for actually talking about what we did and how it worked out. Um, I will often blog about that. There's also um, lots of clients who we don't talk about their stuff publicly either because there's nothing really to talk about or surprising for me given my like philosophical take on the matter, but there are some people who. Believe kind of passionately that a you know a particular strategy that they use in their business is a source of competitive advantage, and therefore they don't want people to find out about that. And I'm generally a share all information and in the pie gets bigger kind of guy. You're competing with Bingo Card Creator. You can literally pull an entire business plan for that off my blog, or and a couple of people have done that. But um, <laughs> some of my consulting clients perhaps not quite copacetic with that kind of like open source philosophy on core business initiatives so like my this pains me my single biggest uh, win ever for a client will never see the light of day that's one of the one of the reasons like that sort of thing is um one of the reasons why i don't just do consulting full-time because i was paid wonderfully for that engagement and it was great fun we created a lot of value the world is better off for it having happened there's a you know, clenched fist in my stomach right now. It's, I really want to tell you what we did because it was awesome and I can't, they bought my soul, you know, they didn't buy my soul. It's just professionalism slash NDA slash I want to work in this town again. And as a result, I can't talk about it, but I really want to talk about it. So um, that's one of the reasons I like, I do consulting. I like consulting. I don't want to have consulting be the focus of my business for forever. Where, if I was being totally honest, right now, like consulting is the center of gravity of my business. Um, that's what I make more money doing. Uh, it makes a heck of a lot more money than being a card creator. And um, I don't talk about appointment reminder revenues publicly for reasons that could be a blog uh, podcast entirely about that. We should probably do that sometime. But, um, man, I'm talking way too much in this way. <laughs> derp. Derp, derp.
2: We can beep you out, beep. just beep out every other word.
0: Let's talk about some other, uh, oh, we're at
2: an hour. Yeah, we're at the two hour mark. So hour mark. yeah, why don't we start wrapping this one up? Mm-hmm. I actually just want to mention one more time. Brennan, I just want to say it was great you coming on the show and talking about this. I also want to say I read your book. Um, I know Patrick read it mm-hmm. as well. The book is $39. I paid for a copy of you guys. Like, I paid for mine as well. Yeah, we did not get comped on this and it was worth every penny. Yeah.
0: Man, I, I tell everybody charge more, but I gotta tell you, Brennan, charge more because it's, Charge more. Charge more it's, it's absolutely ludicrous. Like literally the value proposition is you're going to take this and double your freelancing rate. Presuming that your freelancing rate is already above fifty dollars an hour, you're gonna make this back on your first hour, it's totally a right. no brainer. You should buy right. it before Brennan gets sane.
2: Yeah, he he's actually mentioned he's going to raise the price, so before he does that you should go buy it. And honestly, in the first five pages, I had three new ideas. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I, ha- I got so much value out of that book, and it was only thirty nine dollars. It's just a no brainer. Go buy it. Honestly. Yeah,
0: Brendan, you want to give out the URL for the listeners? We'll put it in the show notes as well. But
3: absolutely, it's uh, doubleyourfreelancingrate.com. dot com. Mm-hmm. It's very simple, straightforward website. Yeah, I mean, I mean, th- there could be another. We could talk another two hours on, on pricing info products, mm-hmm. uh, but. Unfortunately, books have kind of a range attached to them that people are willing to pay because it's a book, regardless of what they get out of it. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things that I want to do now that I have an audience of people who have really the same worldview. They, they're consultants and they, wanna, they feel they're undercharging, just like I feel I'm undercharging with the book. <laughs> and there's a lot, I think, of value that I can deliver to them, especially since I've gone from being a freelancer to at my peak having a consultancy of 10 employees. The current lifetime value of these purchasers is $39. Mm-hmm. But um, as an aside, there's a lot more that I think I can give people that will mutually benefit both both sides of the equation. Absolutely. I do think possibly even before the podcast is released that um, the uh, cost of the book will go up. Mm-hmm. Ah, no, well, give them a special price for just this podcast then. <laughs> well, if you... With the... Patty eleven is the coupon code which will get it for you get you the book for thirty nine dollars. Oh. And very nice. I we'll keep you. the price we'll keep the price for the podcast. I love
0: talking to small businesses because we can totally make a decision like that without talking to it. <laughs> anybody.
3: <damn>, it's just... <laughs> But Brent, don't don't
2: you have to talk with your suppliers and your distributors and everyone about that? I I mean, I Can just I, make I that decision right I there?
0: The CEO is going to approve that, and we have to run it by marketing first. Is that messaging on brand? And do we have I, I need to do this? Name, maybe we should it, circle legal in on this. Let's get in a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> but
3: no, seriously, I I am extremely passionate about this because I've seen for the first two and a half years, really three years, I charged really low. And the word free isn't freelancing. And people (laughs) become freelancers because they want some degree of freedom. And unfortunately, when you're trading in a a 40-hour-a-week job with a a 40-hour-a-week contract, that makes you maybe a little bit more, but not much um, compared to your prior life as a salaried employee, you're not going to get any any noticeable freedom. Sure, you can say you own your own company, but you know at the end of the day, you're still working full time and making not much more than you used to make. So that's really what what kind of inspired me to uh, really put the pen to paper and get this book out there. Well, it's a great book, Brendan.
2: It's really good to read. And I
3: think Thank you. It's
0: an awesome podcast as well. I think especially. Even folks who have no interest in either the marketing of info products or the consumption of info products, go back to the sections on consultancies. There's some really core stuff there for uh, taking your business to the next level. So Brennan, thanks so much for making the time and talking to us for almost two hours now. Yeah. Um, so let's see. Next time, we will we have a different special guest, hopefully, probably within about a month from now. So thanks so much, everybody. For, hopefully, yeah. Yeah. Um, Sticking with us with this podcast, please, you know, drop Keith or I an email with what you liked, what you didn't like, and how we can make this better for you.
2: All right, and everyone, honestly, go buy Brendan's book, no brainer. Yeah. The coupon code is patio eleven.
3: Okay. All right,
2: it's there for thirty nine bucks. Okay.
3: Right now, how to how to set up coupon code? I'll, I'll do it
0: before the podcast.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, the podcast will probably be a week or two before it gets up, knowing our schedule. Yeah. So. <laughs> um,
0: well, all right. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next time.
2: All right. Take care, guys. Bye. Right.